This is the Constructionist Podcast, where we take ancient stories, the person of Jesus, current events and topics, and help you construct a new Christian worldview that's relevant and loving to those around you. I'm your host, Kevin Bates. I'm a semiotician and community builder, looking at the signs of the times to build a better future together. You are tuned into the Constructionist Broadcast, and tonight we are starting with a topic of our basic existence, and we're continuing this topic, actually. We desire for you to be able to navigate your life with a framework, a framework that is relevant and loving to people. And so I want to encourage you to tune into this online broadcast each and every week, and and ways that you can support our ministry is first, follow us, listen to these, engage with them. You can like our social media pages on Instagram and Facebook. You can make comments um, on the videos and on the social media platforms, and you can financially support our ministry through our website, resonatelife.org under the Give tab. That's resonatelife.org under the Give tab. So you are joining us live on Thursday night at 8 o'clock p.m. for this uh, broadcast, and this will be replayed as through the week and as a part of our Sunday morning broadcast as well. So I am joined today with Shreya Bodner and Jake Fluke, two of my leaders. Good evening, Shreya and Jake. Hello. Well, should I start from the beginning? Very beginning. <laughs> okay. I mean, we, we lost you at how many weeks or months we've been in this topic. So you heard an introduction, you heard a few yeah. things. All right. Yeah. So yeah. we have been in the last handful of months, we've been in a, a topic of constructing a worldview. And basically a worldview is a fundamental cognitive orientation of an individual, basically encompassing the whole of an individual's knowledge and point of view. And we used a person by the name of Leo Apostle. Leo Apostle is a Belgium atheist philosopher. And, and basically that Belgium philosopher came up with a six point framework that develops a worldview. Now, of course, an atheist philosopher is not going to come up with a Christian worldview. They're going to come up with just a worldview concept. So you can add your values of Christianity within the framework. But our goal with developing that framework was not to just give you a framework. We gave you each of our worldviews, but that's not what we were attempting to do is to just give you a framework or worldview. You have to come up with an explanation of the world on your own. You have to come up with basically where you believe we are headed, you know, after we die, especially, but our futurology, like where are we headed in life? Do we go to heaven? Do we go to hell? Do you believe in heaven? Do you believe in hell? Then our values, our ethical uh, principles, how we do life, what we need to be doing is in accordance to what we, th- where we think we are headed. It's a very, very tightly related. And then we come up with a theory of action. How do we attain what we need to be doing? Then we talked about truth and falsehood, uh, fallacies and folly. And we talked about basically what is true and what is not true talked about absolute truth and subjective truth. Is absolute truth even real? How do we find absolute truth? Can we find absolute truth? That was in a segment called the theory of knowledge. And then we constructed a worldview. Each of us put building blocks together. We talked about our origins. We talked about our construction, deconstruction principles, and we built a worldview. So that's where we're at as we enter into this new topic, which is actually brand new to me, which I'm excited about. This new topic is on basically, uh, well, Sharia, I'm going to I'm gonna let you talk about it mostly, but uh, just to say this, the title is The Stages of Faith. So mm-hmm. Sharia is going to introduce to us the stages of faith by a gentleman by the name of James W. Fowler. And I'm going to let you take it. Why don't you introduce this topic to us? And then my job, I'm going to use this as an opportunity to connect this 
back to our worldview concept. So I'm going to take this topic and kind of weave it with our framework of worldview. So go for it. Let's hear from you. Sure. Um, one thing I want to clarify, um, at least for the listeners, is that the stages of faith is not a complete worldview. Um, so it's not necessarily functioning in the same way as um, the material from our previous series does. Um, but I at least find it to be a useful framework, and I do think it can fit in that conversation. So that's, there you go. Um, so I read Stallard. Fowler's stages of faith um, during deconstruction and found it super helpful for understanding what I was experiencing. And that's why I wanted to share it on the broadcast. Um, so we'll take about a minute to find out who Fowler was, uh, spend about 10 to 15 minutes talking through his framework, um, and then open it up for uh, dialogue. Um, I have a couple thoughts about why I find this framework relevant. And I imagine that Kevin and Jake, you will have sh some thoughts as well. I have thoughts so, always. You do. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so James W. Fowler, um, he was a white man. So that means he comes from a certain perspective. He was part of the United Methodist movement um, as a pastor and a professor of theology and human development at Emory University. And he was also the director for the Center for Research on Faith and Moral Development. Um, so that just gives kind of a brief picture of the focus of his work and his background and point of view. In 1981, he published the book Stages of Faith. The subtitle is The Psychology of Human Development and the Quest for Meaning. So Stages of Faith provides a framework for understanding how one's faith may change and develop over the course of one's lifetime. Um, I think it's helpful to remember that frameworks of this sort are describing a phenomena. So it's an attempt to make sense of a changing faith. Um, it isn't necessarily the way things are or the way that things should be. Um, it's just one way of making sense of observable changes in faith. So take what's useful, leave what isn't. Um, don't feel like you have to fit yourself into this framework because it's just one tool. Fowler developed his framework after the work of developmental psychologists like Jean Piaget, Eric Erickson, and Lawrence Kohlberg. Um, so if those names are familiar to you, um, you might work in the mental health field or the education field. If they're not familiar, the important part to know is that they also created frameworks to understand psychological and moral development. Fowler used their work to describe how faith develops and rather than confine faith to one correct religion, he defines it as a way of interacting with the universe and creating meaning in life. Um, so it's broad enough to include most, if not all, religions, at least in Western thought, as well as some atheistic worldviews. Um, and faith is a way of interacting with the universe and creating life. So that's some background, and we're ready to go into the framework. Um, is it possible to share the, um, the slide that gives the, the framework? Yeah. So before we continue, my first thought that I just want to throw out there uh, with stages. Mm -hmm. When I hear the word stage, do you think that stages are, he gives such concrete ages to these stages. So before people mm -hmm. hear this, do you believe that there are concrete ages to stages? Um, I think there's some fluidity. Um, the, the ages, and I'll talk about it a little as I go through, but it corresponds with the work of developmental psychologists. Um, who do put ages to their stages as well. Okay. Um, so we'll so, follow that closely and then. Yeah. Okay. Like, I think it is fluid um, and not everybody like fits the mold perfectly, but it, it's a guideline, an age range. Got it. Okay. Go for it. I'm all cool. ears. All right. So we're going to look at the different stages and Jake, feel free to pull the slide up or down or whatever, as you find it useful. Um, so there are seven primary stages, starting with stage zero, 
Um, stage zero is called undifferentiated faith. Um, it occurs from birth to about two years of age. Um, if you're into developmental psychology, this corresponds to Piaget's sensory motor phase and Erickson's trust versus mistrust phase. This stage involves developing a sense of security, attachment, trust, and consistency from parents. And that will later form the basis for feelings of trust and attachment to the universe or to the divine. So it's called undifferentiated because the child's sense of faith is wrapped up in the care that they receive from parents. Mm. So that's stage zero. Any clarifying questions or quick thoughts? Not yet. I don't have All any right. yet, no. Keep going. Cool. Stage one is the intuitive projective faith, um, where the child begins to use imagination and symbols. Stage one starts around age two and goes until about age six or seven. Um, it corresponds with Piaget's pre-operational stage. Mm. This stage is where a sense of right and wrong develops. Um, faith is very literal and kids are just learning to distinguish reality from fantasy. So faith at this stage is experiential and develops primarily through hearing stories and the influence of others. Um, and I can actually, um, I can think of an example from my own life. When I was really, really little, I remember wondering what Bible story was happening in my heart today. And I think the logic there was Jesus lives in my heart but the stories about Jesus are in the Bible. So the Bible stories must be happening in my heart. Um, and so with that, you can see like, there's not a clear line between reality and fantasy. There's an emphasis on the stories um, and kind of a literalness to it. Mm -hmm. So that's stage one. Any, any clarifying questions or quick thoughts? So when I hear literal, when I hear concrete, when mm -hmm. I hear um, visual, it reminds me of the Enneagram and okay. people who are, you know, ones or eights on the Enneagram mm -hmm. uh, take things very literally or concrete, visually, um, reminds me of learning styles or learning modalities where somebody's sure. a, a visual analytic, analytic or a visual creative. So that harkens back to Freudian uh, mm -hmm. philosophy where people get stuck. It reminds me, it doesn't, eh, no, it harkens back to that where, where people sometimes get stuck in stages. Mm -hmm. So, I have sometimes a difficulty with others because they are not moving from stage one into, or maybe even a zero, you know, they're not, they're not willing or able, they don't have the tools to move from zero to one. So I'm wondering if there's mm -hmm. like a, a set of tools or maybe some encouragement that if somebody feels like, you know, they have mommy's faith still literally, Mm -hmm. like mommy and daddy's faith that they live in that primal uh, environment that they, they need their mom to have or need their dad to have a Christianity. Yeah. I um, mean, is there a tool to move through these stages? I think that's a great question. I'm not prepared to answer it, but I imagine I imagine if I were to find some books. Um, well, let's just hang that ornament on something. the tree. Yeah. I, I, let's just hang that on the tree a little bit. Since it's Christmas, we can use those metaphors. Yeah. Getting to close to Christmas. So <clears throat> let's just hang that ornament on the tree and just wait. Because I'm really interested in unpacking uh, the spaces in between. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Stage two. Go for it. So stage two is mythic literal faith, and it starts around age six or seven and usually lasts until early adolescence, like 12-ish. Um, and it corresponds with Piaget's concrete operational stage. And this is when information gets organized into stories and moral rules that are concretely understood. 
So kids in this stage have a really strong sense of justice and fairness. Um, and the stories from one's faith tradition are understood at a moral level. So the Bible stories are there to teach us how to be a good person, um, what, what goodness is, what badness is, what is right and wrong. So that's mythic literal faith. Um, any clarifying questions? Uh, define um, reciprocity and anthropomorphic. Oh, that's, huh. There's some big words in there for big people. There is. I didn't look at my, my diagram close. <laughs> um, I think, um, so they're linking the reciprocity of the universe to justice. So I think the intent there is that um, almost like karma, good people get good things, bad mm. people get bad things. I was wondering if that's where it was going in exchange. I think so. Quid pro quo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And then deities are almost anthro, almost always anthropomorphic. So at, at the very least, putting human qualities onto what we believe about God. So God is related to my father again. I think so. My, my yeah. abusive dad, which my dad wasn't abusive, but my abusive dad, let's say I had an abusive dad. Uh, right. Is equated to my, okay. My, I think it's that and also the transcendent qualities of God are a little hard to grasp. Um, all, all gods are created as uh, in fact, human yeah. in human form. As I read through this, I think and I, I just want to pull the ages off of it. Mm-hmm. Mm, a lot of people find themselves stuck in this place. Mm. So I think when you start to the next, the next three stages are more actualizing. Yeah. Where this is very much not reaching that, as you said, transcendence before. That, right. That it's very, it's very, how does this affect me? Mm-hmm but you can keep going. Go for it. Okay. So on to stage three. Yep. Stage three yep. is synthetic conventional faith. Um, it lasts from about age 12 to age 18. Although some people, many people stay stuck in this stage their whole life. Um, it corresponds to Piaget's formal operational stage. Stage three faith involves an identification with a religious institution, a belief system, or an authority. So defining oneself as a member of this group. I am a Christian, and that is my primary identity. It's who I am. Um, this stage is where one's faith really becomes one's own and not what one grew up with. Um, so I think for a lot of us who were in youth group, we had conversations about what it meant to make your faith your own and not your parents' faith. Um, because develop me, developmentally, we're at that place of figuring out how to have our own faith. Um, all of the individual stories from the faith tradition come together into one big cohesive narrative. So rather than little moral episodes, we're able to see the story from start to finish and how it develops. Um, kids in this stage develop the ability to think abstractly and to see things from multiple perspectives. So they're able to see multiple meanings in the stories and rituals of their faith. Um, stage three is also where um, conflicts and inconsistencies can start to come up. Um, but because faith is so strongly tied to one's identity, those conflicts are often ignored. Um, and that's why people tend to stay in this stage for much, if not all of their adult life. So there we go. Bingo. So, so does Fowler actually say that? Yeah. That people get stuck in this stage. Okay. So if he's open to saying that, he's possibly open to saying what Jake said is the mythical literal getting stuck there maybe too in a very immature style faith too. Perhaps, yeah. Maybe in between um, two and three, yeah. It's been a few years since I've read the book. Um, 
Yeah. But I do think that that's possible. Yeah. Good. Okay. Cool. Okay. On to stage four. Let's do it. Stage four is called individuative reflective faith. Wow. It, <laughs> it typically lasts from about the mid twenties to the late thirties. Um, although as we talked about, some people never reach this stage. Um, and while I suppose it's possible to stay in this stage for the rest of your life, um, it's a really uncomfortable stage. So you're just unlikely to stay in it for that long. Mm. Um, stage four doesn't correspond with any of Piaget's uh, stages because his framework describes children becoming adults and we're well into adulthood at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, individuative. Well, but, the, but could, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, yeah, keep no, going. go ahead. Well, I was just, you said that it's uncomfortable. Is it mm-hmm. uncomfortable because there's a guilt shame cycle that begins to develop right at this stage? Yep. Mm. Oh, okay. Yep, that, that's, that's where that's we're going. Pretty clear. Okay, thank you. Sorry. Keep going. Um, so individuative reflective faith is when people start to experience cognitive dissonance and mm. question their own assumptions. Yep. So depending on how open their faith community is to this kind of questioning, they might experience a lot of fear or shame and really struggle with this stage. Mm. Um, the individuative part, so their faith is moving from identifying with the group to being true to themselves and their own faith. Um, and this is usually the stage when people will either leave their religious community or leave their faith altogether. Um, that can look like uh, defaulting back down to stage three. So maybe, maybe we aren't a Christian anymore. Maybe we're an atheist, but we identify so strongly that we're a stage three atheist mm. because we didn't want to face the the difficult feelings of stage four. So that's stage four. Oh, wow. So that, okay. So that there's a lot there. So let's go back yeah. to stage four when we're done. Cause I want to, I want to. Me too. Well, okay, good. All right. <laughs> um, and then stage five is called conjunctive faith. Um, this is usually experienced in midlife. Um, although I suppose it depends on how long you can last in stage four. This stage is when a person becomes comfortable with the mysteries of faith. So they may have resolved some of their questions from stage four. They may still have plenty of those questions held over from stage four, um, but those questions no longer evoke the same fear and shame that they experienced in the previous stage. There's room for paradox and a sense of peace in the lack of control or certainty. The deep reflection of the previous stage gives way to a focus on community, but without the need to place one's whole identity in that community, as with stage three. Um, People in this stage are open to the beliefs of others because of the way that it enriches their own. So there's kind of a movement away from relativism and towards what I'd call particularism. So it's less all religions are right and more this religion is right for me. Mm. Versus particularism or with particularism. particularism. Mm-hmm. Both? Oh, no, I would say with. With, okay. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Okay. We are actually learning along with you, so this is exciting. Yeah. On to stage six. Yes, please. Because I want to know where I'm headed. Yeah. So stage six (laughs) is called universalizing from five to six. (laughs) All right. We, we all hope, I think, I think we all aspire to that. We aspire to six. I think so. Um, It's called the enlightenment stage. Um, It's typically not reached until very late in life um, and Mm. only by very few people. Um, A person in this stage is not limited by differences in religions or beliefs, but treats all with compassion and understanding. And they're able to interact with anyone in any stage without being condescending. They can become important religious figures. So Gandhi and Mother Teresa are considered examples of stage six universalizing faith. Um, And I guess while many of us like aspire to treat all 
with compassion and understanding. If we're honest, we often fall short of that aspiration. So universalizing faith actually embodies that compassion, not just aspiring to it. Okay, I'm not headed there. <laughs> I'm kidding. Speaking for myself, it's going to take some work. So these are the Buddhas, the Gandhi, yeah. the, yeah, probably the current Pope would be considered Maybe. a Dalai Lama. Uh, Dalai Lama, Mpo Tutu, Desmond mm -hmm. Tutu. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Yeah. So those are the stages. I, you know, the, uh, an American, a, a U.S. citizen mm, yeah. that I would consider a universalizing faith. I know some listeners are going to go, what is Jimmy Carter? Jimmy Carter has served on a board of elders with like Desmond Tutu and some of the greatest leaders, Christian leaders of all time, and has done a lot of peace work. So the building of homes for um, the houseless would be a universalizing reality in his life. Yeah, I can see that. Mm -hmm. So what do you think? Wow. Oh boy. Okay. When I first read it, I didn't agree with it, but now that you mm -hmm. explain it more, <laughs> I go, Okay, I can I can see myself fishing around this pond a little bit. So yeah. Okay. Good. Well, let's pop those stages up one more time. Let me just kind of walk through because I wrote some notes as you were I was mm -hmm. noodling. If we can throw that up there. So I see in probably one through three since our growth and our maturity, the maturation process of infant to adolescence is very fast, you know, 18 years, let's say, or let's say to 20, 26 or whatever, that that getting through the synthetic conventional stage. But then we have from our quarter century all the way to, you know, 85, 90 years old to attain the next three mm -hmm. So, so it's, it's quite interesting if you relate this to the plasticity of the brain mm -hmm. where our brains all the way, well, from zero to once we get out of our final stage of puberty, um, our brains are very plastic, moldable, shapeable. And that's why mm -hmm. trauma uh, is so easy for trauma for children to create neural pathways in the brain. Um, just looking at neurobiology very simply and how psychology, neurobiology uh, co coexist. So, mm -hmm. so uh, our brains are very plastic. Uh, then they turn hardened, literally like hard headed, if you want to <laughs> use that metaphor, but it's very difficult to teach an old dog new tricks. So, <laughs> so the older we get, if we're not set up with the right environment in, mm -hmm. I would say in the individuative reflective environment, if we're not set up properly to experience that stage, then we have a chance of never maturing in our faith. Yeah. And I think Sharia, you nailed something that has been existing in our culture with especially the U.S. Christianity version or Euro mm -hmm. Euro Christianity um, for literally centuries that we do not allow. And you said it, it wasn't my words, that there's not an, an environment that we've created to allow even questioning. We allow some right. questions, but like even the person that's just doubting and questioning and freaking out, you know, that... Santa Claus doesn't exist. Neither does Jesus, you know? So we like have this like, like tear apart deconstruction phase, but yet if there's not an environment for it, what we do is we just say, I don't want anything to do with this anymore. Or, mm -hmm. or you got to believe. 
Right. And we just, which is not helpful. It's not helpful. So we just stay there. And, and I think then going back to, you said, you know, if we're not able or we don't have the environment mm-hmm. for stage four, um, then we slip back into stage three. I, I would actually yeah. argue that that's probably the movement that we're going to Most make. Most often. Cause, yeah. Right. Cause like, to actually go to a next stage if stage theory is actually correct to go to the next stage you have to you just can't skip a stage right if especially this stage theory so we bounce back to stage three which is the synthetic conventional and this is where when you ask somebody are you a christian and they say oh yeah and then they have no like backing of that like okay right. what, what does that mean like like do you does that mean you attend church does that mean that you you know you got baptized one time does that mean that you you know go to christmas easter services does that mean you bring your you know 80 year old aunt to church or like you get this um you're a christian right and they say yeah i'm presbyterian or yeah, well, mm-hmm. n- or they'll say you're a Christian, right? You'll ask that question. You're a Christian, and they'll say, "Well, I'm Catholic," and then they have this like differentiation from being a Christian to the identity of denomination or congregation. Mm-hmm. So they immediately now us being like non-liturgical or you know more uh, more. I don't, I don't want to use these words, but more evangelical, right? Free, flow. free well, more non-denominational. Yeah. But I, I would argue that that's not really a thing anymore anyway. But uh, so we're supposedly non-denominational. So we don't have those identity pieces of, well, yeah, I'm Catholic or no, right. I'm Catholic or yeah, I'm a Presbyterian or oh, yeah, I'm Anglican or, or, uh, or, uh, Episcopal, um, those are our identity markers. And then we stay there. Mm-hmm. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was thinking about how like every few years when Barna comes out with the new research about how all the young people are leaving the church, mm-hmm. you know, like I think all that's happening is this movement from stage three to stage four but the stage three folks don't understand that it's a growing faith. And so they freak out. Hmm. Jake, do you have any continued thoughts? Yes. (laughs) Trying to form them. Um, Yeah. Taking away taking him off of, of Paget's mm-hmm. and going more into, into looking at age doesn't necessarily mean, I, I would not, I wouldn't put a, an actual age on these steps. Mm-hmm. I, I understand how they're connected to concrete um, right. stages of development. I get that. Um it is i think that every person entering into into their own faith journey no matter what i think religion i think every religion can actually adhere to this structure as well that they go through this process which is great mm-hmm. um cuz there is a need for a lot of people especially like new Christians to have concrete symbols and stories mm, and to okay. learn, no matter what age they are. That makes sense. Yeah. And then to move into the next, the next understanding of, of this reciprocity quid pro quo, as we said before, like um, God is, as an example of my own father, right. Mm-hmm. That could be at any age. And then get into the personal myth of the narrative. 
I I think I struggle mostly with stage three. Hmm. What part of it? How come? I don't see it as delineated out from two to four. Okay. I get where they're going with it. Mm-hmm. I understand it. Um, I, w- I, w- I, w- I would want to read more of, of why three is his actual stage. Okay. You think it could be mostly lumped with two? I think it could be mostly lumped with, with two and four together. Oh. So I, think, I think the... I think the difference in, in between two to four is, is this idea of two is things that are outside of my control. Okay. And four is the things that are inside of my control. I have a responsibility for, mm-hmm. and that is my own personal myth and identity. Any thoughts? Well, I think what you're go ahead. What you're saying makes sense. Um, I'd also, I think, have to do a little more reading to to get into that. Yeah, yeah. Make it plainer, Jake. Like, say it more plain. Um, gosh, I'm trying. Uh, the the guy like. The conformity to a per, uh, of a personal myth and identity, I think, moves you from stage two to four, where things are not like two is everything in the universe is outside of my control. Like there's a there's a strong sense of justice reciprocity, like it says, right? But everything is outside of my control. Mm-hmm. And I am just, I'm just a pawn in this play. And then four is I do have responsibility and control of some things, right. my belief structure, my values, my learning, my, my understanding of the universe. And that comes from a personal myth and identity. So maybe I just answered the question of, of two is this three is the step from two to four. That's why we call this our thinking space, huh? There you go. Mm-hmm. That's it. Well, I I think that uh, if I think about the age, so if I include age back in, right, adolescence, mm-hmm. personal myth is actually a psychological, uh, psychotherapeutic um, idea. Mm-hmm. And so there's a reason he's following, you know, psychology with this right. a little bit. Um, and if you look at what's developed in adolescence, a personal story, identity in a normal, like, how can you say normal? Not normal. In a, In like a, a, a safe environment? Is that where you're going? Uh, yeah, in a safe environment, in a healthy environment. Mm-hmm. Let's just say healthy environment. In a healthy environment, identity is shaped and formed through our personal, like, personal identity, um, the values that we cling on. This is why social justice is really becomes a really passionate subject right now with, like, probably seventh grade all the way through high school is that mm-hmm. is a really passionate subject with uh, junior high and high schoolers. Um, and I, I would say that personal, like personal myth um, would be the, the identity and the, the, can we use the word story that is shaping that? Mm-hmm. 
And so you allow what's being taught to you to shape that story, which shapes your identity. This is why it's super toxic right now for a youth pastor or an adult pastor or a children's pastor to lie basically to adolescent children about the Bible because, Mm -hmm. because once they figure it out, yeah. <laughs> then that whole set of identity and values and story right. becomes crumbling. And that's why you said when that next stage, they end up in this more uh, deconstruction questioning type environment. They go, wait a minute. Like, that's not what pastor Kevin told me. Right. Um, and then their whole world crumbles at that and i've witnessed that happen and they question everything at that point well they just throw it all out you know because we taught we taught one version of the creation story and then they wake up and hear something different and therefore jesus can't be you know resurrected anymore um and the whole thing comes crashing down for them so i think that it's a valid it's a valid uh, uh, stage. At what point does that happen? Because you said we could get stuck in stage three. Mm-hmm. So I think that's why, Jake, you're probably struggling with, well, stage three doesn't seem like it fits because I think there's a lot of people stuck there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because actually for your right, Sharia, it does not happen at the the level that it needs to happen. Right. Something else I was thinking about was um, how a framework like this kind of gives a picture of what reconstruction can look like. Mm. Um, Like something I think happens a lot is that when you're in the process of deconstructing your faith, um, you deconstruct the the content or the beliefs, but not the form. So like you can start out as a biblical literist and be super dogmatic about that. Um, and then, you know, you, you learn things, cognitive dissonance comes up, all of a sudden, biblical literalism isn't true. Therefore, the whole Bible must be false. And now I'm an atheist and I'm totally against the Bible and Christianity and all of that stuff. And like, we've stayed in the same stage of faith. We've just swapped out the content. So I don't, I don't think a full deconstruction, reconstruction process has occurred there because it's only the content that was deconstructed and not the form. So how do you think the Enneagram relates to this, like our personality types? So if you look at a personality type, they're going to gravitate towards a certain stage, more more of a certain stage than others. So if I'm a seven on the Enneagram or I'm entrepreneurial Mm -hmm. or I'm an ENFP, according to Myers-Briggs, I'm you know, whatever, label me, whatever you want to label me, a serial entrepreneur. (laughs) Um, I get, I probably have this. um, I probably live in a stage a little more often than probably is healthy for me. Yeah, I would think so using sevens as example, um, it's pretty common for sevens to avoid unpleasant feelings or situations. Right. So it's time to move on. (laughs) Right. So yeah, actually engaging in the difficulty of stage four could be really difficult. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Definitely. But if you're a four on the Enneagram, you kind of live for those unpleasant feelings. Um, and so you might be very comfortable just sitting in stage four for a while. Hmm. I have been sitting in stage <laughs> four for a while, actually. <laughs> if I was completely honest, I yeah. mean, stage four has been just, you know, uh, 
It sucks. It well, actually, it doesn't for me. I just I. If you think about per, like the idea of personal myth, right? Mm-hmm. The 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 things that shaped who I am. I think you have to go back to who who uh, the hierarchy of needs. Maslow. 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 That's a different person. All three of us said it yeah. differently. Yeah, Maslow. Maslow's hierarchy. Maslow. 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 It's, it's not Pavlov. That's for sure. It's not Pavlov. Yeah. So Maslow. 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 Sorry. It's Maslow. 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 His hierarchy of needs. We were taught certain things about what we needed. Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, you you were taught at some point that you needed air to breathe and water and s- sleep and some kind food. of food, you know, and maybe we were taught a poor set of that. You know, we were taught a poor foundational um, set of needs. Uh, if you move to like security, sociability, psychology, those kinds of needs our our story our backgrounds our environments our growing up how we were raised all of that interplays with that hierarchy of needs coming to self actualization of you know i'm at one with myself and i come up with a set of values and and you know set of let's say problem solving skills and i'm able to navigate through conflict and able to just live life now so now i have this personal identity Mm-hmm. But simultaneously, my brain, that's why that's why with children are very resilient. Children can get hurt and they can make it. They really can make it. And you think about like what happens to us as an adult versus children. Lots of things happened to me as a child that I think that if it happened to me today, I don't know if I could recover. Mm. But be, but because it happened to me as a child with a very plastic brain, and yes, I developed neural pathways that maybe weren't healthy and such, but I was able to grow through them and and able to change. And the, I think that one of the things that changes the plasticity of our brain, the neuroplasticity of our brain is an actual thing, is probably uh, play, music, mm. play. Uh, creativity, mm-hmm. using my brain to develop and work with hands. And it's, it's kind of like you're knitting, Sharia. Like actually being creative mm-hmm. helps develop the neuroplasticity of your brain. Your brain isn't as hard because of those things. So new ideas and new thoughts, and I'm not so closed to the world. Um, And that's what it takes to move, I think, from stage three through four to five is play is is some form and it's proven that neuro and if you if you watch huberman's uh listen to huberman's podcast online uh just go huberman.com hubermanlab.com you will you will find different techniques and ideas uh to change the neuroplasticity of our brains um and be able to move through stages mm-hmm. to be more to be more open like mindfulness is one of those things that mm-hmm. changes the neuroplasticity of our brain and that's why that's why mindfulness is so important to reduce stress because stress many times is is because we're facing unknown realities so we face something that's unknown and we're just taken off guard and, oh my goodness, now I need to do this and I can't figure that out. Mm-hmm. Well, mindfulness and becoming mindful of situations changes neuroplasticity. I think exercise can do the same thing. I think entering into competitions where you're like with people and and exercising and, and uh, like running a race could change literally change it's a, the what's it called it's a selected stress you're putting yourself under mm. yeah yeah a very healthy selected stress that makes your brain operate um operate differently it's muscle memory mm-hmm. well, does that so, like 
like you are putting yourself in a stressful situation that you basically are, mm-hmm. are creating a crisis for yourself. But it doesn't necessarily have to be a crisis because when I was um, in counseling once, uh, my counselor looked at me and it's, it's always stuck with me and I know what he was doing. He said, I want you to get up every day and take a shower and brush your teeth and get ready for the day. And I want you to start your day by going out and smelling the roses. And, and I just kind of looked at him like, okay, I, I don't know where roses grow. But, <laughs> but, but that's the first thing I thought. And then the second thing I thought was, okay, I, I get what you're saying. But then what, what good is that? And, you know, when I started practicing, just going for a walk, looking at nature, being involved in creation, it literally changed my mind. Mm-hmm. It changed my mind. I think we so, can also talk about the liminality of each step as well. Oh, yeah, definitely. Well, that's the, the, oh, yeah, that's the spaces in between. The spaces in between. So liminality is an idea of, gosh, what was his name? Um, talking about when you walk through the doorway into the next stage of life. And so um, a walk I'll, about I'll look him up here really quick. Liminality you. was developed by an anthropologist by the name of, of but uh, keep talking like the Maasai and their hunting trips or right. um, the Aborigines in Australia and their walkabouts, or they have, different coming of age ideas that moves a person from childhood to adulthood. Mm-hmm. And like in the Western culture, we lack, we lack that significant step. Yeah. Um, you know, you you're have, thinking of Victor Turner, probably it was first developed by Arnold van Gennep, but it's, you're thinking of Victor Turner. Yes. And I'm, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not quite sure I'm thinking of, but that's, Probably it's probably who you're thinking of. The you know, like a in the Latino Latina culture, it's quinceañeras, and mm-hmm. you yeah. have you have major liminal experiences from stage of life to stage bar of life. Bar mitzvahs for Jewish tradition. Yeah, bat mitzvahs, bar mitzvahs. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some other ones? Well, a liminal experience for just common culture would be a graduation. Yeah. So going to a graduation ceremony is like a is like a liminal experience. Next stage, next stage. Yeah, yeah that's a very yeah. common one. Um, each of these stages that we're looking at right now have some sort of liminality from from point to mm-hmm. point, and so just the 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 verbiage change of how much at each stage you're taking on a responsibility. piece by piece. Mm. And so a lot of the times we talk about faith having to be our own or faith being mm. not our parents' faith or our understanding. I think it's, it's wrong to say our personal relationship with Jesus. I don't think we should ever go to that, that stage, that step, but how, how you personally understand things and mm. take responsibility for that. So if you think about liminal experiences, liminality, there's, if I'm, I'm actually pointing at the chart that you've put up here, but nobody can see me do that. So, so if you look at the different uh, stages, if you can slip into between each stage and write the word liminality or liminal experience and what a liminal experience does is it pulls you out of the environment that you're in and puts you back into a different environment. So mm-hmm. it comes from some anthropologists that studied tribal life and how when you were a child in a tribe, um, you were many times only raised by the mother um, in many in many tribes in uh, our world, that that is a reality that you're only raised by the mother. The fathers, you know, are out doing other things, uh, very 
very much, you know, probably stereotypical ideas that the that the males and the females do in this kind of setting. Uh, when the child gets old enough, um, and this is this is the study that Victor Turner did, where he he studied when children got to a certain age, they left the mother's camp and they went with the dads and the dads took them out into the wilderness. And then they had this experience. Now, some of us would think that that experience is fairly violent um, and pretty much life altering and maybe even traumatic. Yet that's what, that's what some tribes uh, engage in as they, they go on a big hunting expedition or they go um you know, this is where sometimes the males, the the boys are circumcised. They will uh, go do that, or they'll go have literally a physical and mental and spiritual experience outside of the camp. Then when they enter back into the camp, they live in the male side of the camp. Mm-hmm. So they don't go back to the female side of the camp. They go to the male side again. So that was uh, that was a study done way back in the day on tribal liminality. But what was interesting to me when I've studied liminality is you move in social hierarchy. So when you get old enough in one level or one stage, you're like big man on campus, you know, big, big lady mm-hmm. on campus you know you're like the like the cream of the crop you know i'm the i'm yeah. the mature yeah. one or whatever uh and then when you go through the liminal experience and enter that next stage you're very immature at the again you're at the bottom of right. the social hierarchy again so if you applied that same principle uh what it takes to move in social hierarchy is social activity, which is what we call community. And so each one of these stages, a requirement almost, I would say, to move from one stage to the next and have some kind of liminal experience between the two would be a community of people around us helping us through the process or through the stage. Mm-hmm. I think it would be impossible to do this literally on your own. Yeah. Well, and something that came up for me as you were saying that, like, I think when we have communities where most folks are stuck in a stage three and not able to move beyond that, nobody else is able to move beyond that either because you don't have your, um, like, elders, so to speak. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Who have gone to the next stage and can and can walk you through that process. Yeah. So then you're just keeping your whole community stuck in immaturity. Yeah, that's a, it's well, a especially, yeah, especially in stage four. Mm-hmm. You know, not to name call, but there's certain like what we would deem cultish groups um, in our United States that act very controlling when you try to move from three to four to five right right that's just not an option thought four is not an option and they expect you to move from a very um i guess synthetic conventional faith to a universalizing faith no, actually, they wouldn't no. even. They wouldn't they want, even. They go want to, to keep no. you right there. They believe yeah. that people who believe that their way is the highway keep you at stage three. Mm-hmm. No questions allowed. Yeah. Oh, power comes with keeping people below. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the same level that you are in. Right. Right, and part of stage three is is your your whole identity is attached to this group. So anyone anyone asking questions is a direct threat to your identity. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. That's why they call books uh, that are well question or knock their cultish religion. They call mm-hmm. that material anti-material. 
they think that it's mm. anti. So they actually do not many times some of these groups, these religious groups do not allow their congregants to even read, get educated, seek counseling. They don't seek counseling. They don't seek help of any kind. It's only help within the group, only books within the group. It's very closed. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Because they want to stop those liminal experiences. Right. Right. So where do you think tradition fits into this? What do you mean? Well, we have traditions. Yeah. Like Advent. Uh-huh. We have traditions like mm, Easter traditions as well. Okay. Um, you could even say that dying eggs is a tradition of the church. Sure. Um. Traditions like the uh, ecclesiological mm-hmm. or liturgical calendar, the rhythms, the seasons. Traditions of... like a baptism, communion. Mm-hmm. Well, I would say that baptism is probably a liminal style experience. I would argue for that, but I would I would argue that everything you said was could produce liminality. Yeah. Or does it produce stuckness? No. <laughs> I think that, like, in the right context, dying eggs or even Advent or Lent yeah. or however you do them and perform them could move you on to a deeper and more free understanding. When we talk about things that can trigger, and we are talking about triggering deconstruction from concreteness to abstract to... um openness i think if i put the last stages openness yeah i think that those those traditions those ideas can actually trigger the next step Mm. that's why we have them yeah so in stage three you develop the ability to um see and hold multiple meanings in a given story or a given ritual or tradition um and, and I think you still carry that, that gift um, as you move into the other stages as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think all along the journey, there's room for our traditions to surprise us and delight us and bring, bring new things and feelings to our understanding. Um, yeah, and potentially produce change, produce a liminal experience. Definitely. Yes. But. But. And but. but. And. No, but. 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 Oh. No, and. And. Yes, and. (laughs) I get what you're saying. I'm just, I'm just struggling with, because I am, you know, a, I am a very, I'm probably a traditionalist too much about, you know, certain things. Um, and I find myself very stuck sometimes because of my traditions. So for example, like the Advent season, you know, this week we were supposed to talk about hope and I did write on hope um, for the, for the sermon yet I kept asking myself, how many sermons have I written and preached on hope? And people still, number one, don't get it. And (laughs) number two, uh, do we have to talk about this again, like right now? So, so I, so sometimes I feel like a calendar or tradition. um, This is the season we're in and we have to preach these things. Um, or teach or do or, you know, hang the gold flags or whatever, um, that it creates a grounding, yes, but because my brain is so seven exploratory that I sometimes feel held back Mm -hmm. in a sense. That's why I took the Hope Sermon and said, do I have to preach this this way every year and i'm like no i don't i'm not going to because i'm 
that that way is not producing the effect that I I want, want have. and I yeah. desire for people to have. Mm-hmm. So it took me, well, maybe that's what you're saying then. I, I think it could be. Yes. Yeah. That if, if I do something every year and have to do it, I have to figure out how to do it differently. Otherwise it's just a regurgitation of vomit. Yeah. Right. And there, there's a certain point where like, if you have changed and grown then doing the same old thing isn't integrity to where you're at. Mm. Yeah. If could we put some links in the show notes today that if somebody wanted access to Fowler's book or that yeah. now I know that that's probably a copyrighted stage format that we pulled from somewhere. So maybe Fowler's book on stages of faith. Could we give that link? Because I I, I, I want to go back and read Fowler's stuff and probably do some foundational original research look to mm-hmm. what, you know, what he's basing this on. And because uh, I really find, Shrey, you kind of <laughs> blew my mind a little bit with stage four, where I was like, wow, okay, there could be so much so much growth in that stage, but because yeah. you said we're afraid or we're, you know, we don't, it's uncomfortable. There's reasons why that's uncomfortable. And that stage, you know, doesn't have to be uncomfortable. It could be celebrated. Right. Mm-hmm. Finally, you're questioning your faith. <laughs> and right. that, that somebody can grow through that and come up with like new thoughts and new ideas and, and amazing ministry ideas and and contribution to our society versus the same right i think i think you nailed something that i think that's why i'll give the the uh conclusion and the audacious conclusion that probably that's why the church is where it's at today is because people are not allowed that stage mhm Maybe that's too, yeah. too, you know, broad of a conclusion. But I would say that that's one of the major reasons that environment is not a healthy, healthy platform. And that when people do start a deconstruction process, that there's so much fear <laughs> around. Yeah. It. Mm-hmm. As you're sitting there with a Buddha behind your head. <laughs> Well, you're sitting there with a gorilla behind your head. I know. Is that the gorilla right there? Right there. You got it. I think I have. uh, I don't know. Is it up there? Yeah, you have the the, the seven dharmas. That's the eightfold path of Buddhism right there. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Yeah, there we go. So maybe I'm more of a universalization person than... Is it universalization? Universalizing universalizing okay universalizing that's a that's an interesting word to me all right thanks sharia that was awesome yeah very good all right any concluding concluding thoughts i think we gave them i think we're good okay excellent thanks everybody for joining us again if you want to ask questions or if you want the link to uh james fowler's book you can look in the show notes and click on that probably buy it from that uh, that conglomerate site that it'll lead you to. You can purchase it online and get that information and probably download it and just listen to it on an ebook form. I'm sure that's available too. So we'll get that to you. Thanks, Shreya, for all your work mm-hmm. this week and presenting this material and putting it together for us. And if you have any other materials that support this, give us those links and we can drop those in the show notes today. All right. With that, good night, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Good night.